Hi, everyone. This is episode 13 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Jason Strasser for the second time. Jason, it's been, uh, it's been a, a very busy week for you. I, I, I should stop and say we received a lot of questions on Twitter. We're going to be talking about investments in general. We're not going to give any investment advice or talk about any specific names, but we're, we're definitely going to give some, some very opinionated viewpoints about what's going on in the markets. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, been a incredible few weeks. Uh, not sleeping much, but I think, yeah, I think that it's been the most interesting market I've ever seen. So uh, on one hand, it's terrifying what's going on. But on the other hand, work has been very, very interesting. Um, all right, market overview. So I guess one of the things that I thought might be interesting for you guys to do is to kind of dive into the sectors. Um, the coronavirus is flowing through equity markets in a very interesting way. Um, before we dive in, I think it's really important to say that um, we're discussing the 90 to 95 percentile sort of situation. I think we at work, we call it the Mad Max scenario. Like you, you have to think that there's like a, whether you think it's a 0% or, or, or like 5% or 10% chance, but there's some tail outcome here that's really ugly. And all this analysis and all this stuff in terms of thinking about the future, if we get to a really ugly, massive problem scenario, you know, none of this analysis is really going to matter because every stock's just going to get destroyed and it's going to be a bloodbath. Um, you know, if you look back and read it about viruses in the past, you know, they, they change over time and most viruses, and we're not going to, I'm not a virus expert, but it seems like most viruses typically optimize for survival. And that usually involves not killing someone when they affect them immediately, because then the virus doesn't have a good chance of spreading. So typically, like if you think about the flu and things like that, that have been around for like a long time, there are different strains of it, but they've been around forever. They survive because they don't, they're not that deadly. But if you go back and read about viruses in the past, they, they can change. And so I think you have to, whenever you're looking at investments or looking at markets, you have to be aware that there is a tail outcome here. Um, you can debate how fat of a tail it is, but there, there's a really ugly tail. Um, but what I'm discussing here, and I think most of the day, we're going to be thinking about sort of the world where we're not in that tail. Um, how, how the coronavirus is flowing through has been really fascinating. Um, there's basically two kinds of businesses. There's businesses that can handle a stop, and there's businesses that can't handle a stop. Um, if you think about uh, like a restaurant, for example, uh, no, when, when they set up a restaurant company, no one ever anticipated this scenario where all the restaurants around the world just stop. And so it's really fascinating to see, you know, if you think about, you think about if Brandon and I owned a restaurant, we might have like contingency plans. We might think about, oh man, like if, if, um, if something happens, we'll have some rainy day funds sitting aside in the equity markets today, though, there are a bunch of different sectors out there where if a management team did something like that, let's just say there's one restaurant company out there that was scared and had a war chest of money out there. An activist investor would have rolled through and kicked them out and demanded buybacks and dividends and, and a more efficient capital structure. And I'm not saying that's the wrong thing to happen, but that's what would happen. So every restaurant out there has a very similar capital structure and they're all set up not for this. So obviously like the hardest hit areas are the businesses that can't handle a stop. Um, airlines, cruise ships are obvious but also things like retail establishments um, and then energy uh, and energy is kind of its own thing. And the, the interesting thing about it is that they're the, um, yes, yeah, so like, you know, retail and 
yeah, just basically there's not one retail business set up for this. And it's kind of sad because, oh, sorry, my dog came out. Sorry. Is this allowed? Sure. Sorry. She'll freak out if I don't. All right, say hi to Penny, the world. Um, hey there. All right. And so in a, uh, in a, like, a world stop scenario, um, these, the capital structures are set up in place where they're not going to handle it. And it's not these companies' fault. It's really the, the, the public markets. You know, we're, we've been in the middle of a big bull market. Um, no, matter, no matter what's happened, these companies have basically been forced to take on lots of debt and be very aggressive with their capital structure. And they're just not ready for this. So I think when you're looking at these stocks, a lot of them are down. You know, you look at casino companies and things like that. A lot of them are down 80, 90% now. And the market is basically saying that they're all going to go bankrupt. And there's obviously opportunities sorting through the dust there and seeing if you can find a survivor in the pack. But that's what the market's saying right now. Uh, when you look at um, oil and gas, oil and gas has really got its own interesting dynamics. Um, oil and gas, if you rewound like to 2014, and probably 2000, let's go 2007 to 2014, all the oil and gas companies that were exploration and production, they basically played a game. And the game was uh, go lease a bunch of acreage, go drill one well, or maybe two wells, get some, get some results. And then the equity markets would see that result and extrapolate. So they'd say, oh, you drilled one well here. You own this massive amount of acreage. They'd say, wow, this company is worth a lot of money. You proved out this acreage. And these companies played this game. You know, they were never in the game of making money. They were in the game of getting lots of, <laughs> lots of leases, proving it out, then going to the equity markets and raising money. They never generated free cash flow. They never did anything. If anyone wants to see an interesting presentation, David Einhorn put out a very interesting presentation on I think it was called like he called he, he came up with the mother fracker he was like shorting one of the fracking companies it was a very good presentation but he was dead right i mean he basically saw the future which is that that game when the music stopped and investors said i want free cash flow i want returns it, it totally broke but you basically had all these public equities that were still built when it was okay to play that game and now you're seeing you know you've seen in the last few years a shift towards these companies trying to make cash but now what's going on with the drop in demand with the coronavirus, with the fight in the Middle East, you know, the Middle East is pretty interesting because I, I kind of like those guys can control the price of oil by su controlling the su supply of oil and Russia. Um, but what happens with these guys is when they take supply offline, the U.S. typically just makes more and more and more. So U.S. basically every time these guys try to support the price, uh, the U.S. jumps in with extra production. And what's recently happened is they basically decided we're just going to um, wreak havoc on all these U.S. oil and gas producers that were already teetering, and they're trying to basically really curtail supply from those guys. So I think coronavirus kind of acted as a catalyst for Middle East and Russia to say, now's a good opportunity to wipe a lot of these guys out that are causing us a lot of problems with supply. And so basically there's almost no oil and gas companies that, you know, small EMP oil and gas companies in the U.S. that are solvent at this price level. I mean, they're all basically, every single one of them is losing money at this price level. And so to me, it's very interesting because uh, I think there will be survivors out of the pack, but it's going to be a bloodbath. And yeah, so like if you take the sort of consumer stuff, the retail, the energy, those are the most beaten down. That, that's, they've gotten just annihilated by Corona. The other one that was a little bit less obvious was financials. Um, 
if you look at the regional banks or you look at just any financial company, it could be an insurance company, any, any, anything that, you know, these companies almost always benefit from higher interest rates. Uh, if you're a traditional bank, obviously you have checking and then you're, you know, that's your deposits and you're lending out at a higher rate. Um, the lower the interest rates are, the lower the spreads are. But I think the really interesting thing with financials is uh, coronavirus is basically, um, made it so everyone is like zero rates forever. And it, it wasn't quite like that before coronavirus, but um, that's where we are right now. And so I think if I look back towards the beginning of coronavirus, that was the one sector that shocked me. Like retail and energy, a lot more, that was a lot more straightforward. I've been surprised with the bloodbath in financials. Swinging to the other side, uh, the sectors that are unaffected or less affected are healthcare and tech. and. You know, when I think about investing, I think there are a bunch of stocks that are down 30% from their highs that deserve to be down 30% from their highs. There's a bunch of stocks that are down that much that don't. And a lot of the ones that don't are probably in the, in the healthcare and, and tech space. Um, we saw in the beginning of coronavirus, it wasn't a full on panic to sell things and liquidate. And in the last sort of, last, certainly last week, there was just straight up liquidation going on. You know, like how do you explain the moves in, in some of these moves um, other than people just needed liquidation? And anecdotally and also not anecdotally, we've seen in the market people liquidating. You know, there, there are funds that are not, you're going to read about it in the paper coming up. There are funds that did not survive the last week and they're just liquidating. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity now for investors to look through the rubble. A lot of stuff has gotten crushed. A lot of it is more liquidity driven, especially in the last week than it has been on sort of positioning. I think today was a very interesting day in markets where it was a lot more like um, rational stuff going on. People were uh, getting selling the losers, the things that are logically screwed by coronavirus, and they were buying things that were not. And I, I think that trend will continue. Um, you know, today you saw healthcare stocks, some of them doing very well. You saw the continuation, like, you know, movie theater companies today killed again, restaurants killed again, casinos killed again. Um, so yeah, it's kind of interesting how it's all flowed through. And I think, I think there's a ton of opportunity for people that uh, can just buy and close their eyes. And, and if they can pick, first of all, if you can pick survivors out of the retail or out of the oil and gas space, you're going to get a 10, 20, 30 X return on your equity. Um, I don't recommend doing that unless you really know what you're doing. Um, but you can also venture into some of these stocks that are down 30, 40% that logically aren't that affected by, you know, when you wake up in three years from now, this, the coronavirus will not be haunting them is what I'm trying to say. Well, that was an unbelievable summary. You covered a lot of ground in a short period of time. Uh, I don't have so much to add, but some questions come to mind. Um, the Mad Max scenario, let's start from the, from the top. Mm -hmm. The Mad Max scenario that you mentioned, do you see the Mad Max coming about because of something in our economic structure and our financial markets where it doesn't have to be that bad, but something could implode there? Or are you saying there's a Mad Max scenario because the virus is particularly bad? I'm going with the virus here. I'm saying something, you know, we have all these assumptions right now on what the virus is, what it might do. Um, I'm just saying that those are just guesses. I think anyone is just guessing on, on what might happen. And there could just be a really, really, really awful turn with the virus. And that's what I was talking about. Yeah. 
My personal opinion there, which is non non specialist opinion, is that they are able to uh, track mutations, and it is true on the one hand that there is there is no push for uh, selection. Like if 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 there was a mutation, there's no there's no selection going on for well, this one's spreading faster because, because it's working or in a reproductive sense working. Um, so to get like a virus evolved in a way that's very good for the virus, you need mutation and selection. We don't have any selection going on because it's just going crazy in the population and there's no immunity to it. Um, but to the extent that you get an evolution that's good for the the virus and and bad for humans um you would you would need mutation coupled with selection and the early evidence is that this virus does has a very slow mutation speed which is which is good in the sense that the nightmare scenario that you talk about is a little bit less likely um, now, and, and it's also like the, the mutation, and I don't know how, how a mutation is capable of, um, uh, what type of mutation is possible, but also the probability that you get a particularly damaging form of mutation obviously goes down when fewer of them are happening. And, and, and the thinking is that it's very slow mutation that's going on. So. Anyway, hopefully, hopefully I, hope, I, hope, I hope you're right. I, I, you know more. You, it sounds like you know where, way more than I do about the biology and what's going on here. But just from like a from a portfolio management perspective, as someone that's responsible for managing other people's money, I have to consider something like that being possible. Even though, yeah, just it, it, some. I don't know what the right odds of it are, but you, no matter who you are, you have to have a plan for that happening. In my opinion. And yeah, so that's, and there, that's there are other aspects that could lead to Mad Max, uh, other unforeseen things, right? Yeah, because, true. for instance, uh, you could have some unexpected international conflict, right? Yeah, um, you could you could have. Well, we all know that our economy and financial markets are fragile because of years of high debt levels and so on and so forth. And, and, and that fragility there, there is the possibility that this is, this is too much stress on the system and you could just, just have a break. Um, and then also there is uh, social cohesion at a time where there's clearly a lot of stress and politically it's hard to keep 330 million people in the U S getting along well. Uh, so there, so there are other things that can lead to, to the Mad Max scenario, but I think your numbers are about right. It sounds like we agree there, like five, five percent, maybe ten percent at worst. Um, the analysis on uh, energy I found very interesting. Um, there, one wonders if policy would move in a hurry to support the domestic energy sector in that it might be hard to rebuild if all these companies just go fully BK. And there, there clearly is 
some some advantage to having domestic oil production. Um, and we're getting to this point where if you're summing up all domestic oil production, it's not coming to a very high valuation relative to overall U.S. market cap. It was it was no, it's like two percent market cap right now or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and and lately it's uh, decreasing at a at a quick rate, and these a lot of these companies are are pricing as if bankruptcy is is high probability. So. Um, <clears throat> One wonders if it gets much worse, whether there, whether there is some some support that comes there. Well, uh, it's it's a cyclical industry. It's always been that way. It's going to continue to be that way. I mean, it's just one of those classic cyclical industries. I just think, I think you're right. Like the, the other thing is technology. So I live in Oklahoma City where this is the number one industry around town. And, and so there's a lot of more people running around in my life that are kind of in, in the weeds here. And the technology has gotten so good in this space. So it's just, it's just unlocked this incredible amount of supply and it's just not much more to it than there's going to be this chess game. That's going to happen. It happened in 2006, you know, 16, if you remember early in 2016, the exact same chess game happened where um, the, you know, the OPEC and those guys, you know, started flooding the market, put a lot of companies in, in here out of business. And this is round two. And there's no, there's no reason to think that there's not going to be around. There's going to be around three. This is just the world we're in right now, because when you have a cartel on one side and you have free markets on the other side, there's just, there's just a tension there. And um, I do agree. There's obviously strategic value of having it. I don't think it's going to go anywhere. I think that the people, this is a pretty resilient group of companies. If you look at, there's a lot of people around town that have been through a lot and they, and they're, these people that have been oil and gas their whole career, they're survivors. And I, I think, yeah, I think, I think you're going to see a lot of bankruptcies. I think you're going to see a lot of restructuring. I think you'll see a lot of losses in private equity that's in the space as well, not just public equity. And then, and then on to the next one. You know, once, once a bunch of these companies become bankrupt, you'll get better pricing. It's, it's also very logical at some point, Saudi Arabia and Russia, they need much higher prices to, to sustain their budgets. Like they're, it's, this will not work for them either. So it's just a cycle. But I think Wherever. when you look at public, public equities, it's really challenging. And you know, a lot of people look at the big, the big integrated oil and gas companies. So the ones that are not only just doing, you know, exploration and production, they're also looking at the ones that do midstream and you know, the whole thing, and you know, the ones that sell gas to you in the station retail. Um, I think the interesting thing is a lot of those big companies that you've heard of, you know, the big market cap oil companies, if you look at their balance sheet right now, or look at their cash flow statement right now, they, they're all paying a dividend. The yields are between like six and 8% right now on these very big oil companies, but they're not generating enough cash to pay that dividend right now. They're, they're, they're generating enough cash to pay a part of the dividend. They're borrowing the rest. So even like the major big oil companies that everyone's heard of, they look, their financials look like crap right now. They can't even afford to pay their dividend, you know, after CapEx. So free cash flow, you know, free cash flow minus div um, doesn't get you there. So yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't really know. Like, I, I just know that if you were, if you're able to pick a few of the survivors out of the rubble here, you're going to do really, really, really well. Not to get too deep in the weeds there, though, there, there has, there has been a tendency in the long history for, um, let's say a big company like Exxon. Okay. They, they are very good at, finding new oil supplies. So 
there has been a history of them benefiting from a time like now because all the small companies get wiped out. No one else is investing in discovery. They're investing in discovery. They know where all the oil is. And if the price goes up, which is likely to happen because all the uh, all the supplies being knocked out, then they're in the best position. So there has been a long history of that. And then also Saudi, uh, they have $2 marginal cost for oil, so they can have a, a price war, but they don't have infinite supplies at that, at that price. They, now they do for 15 years or whatever, but they don't necessarily have 30 years. And, and the Exxons of the world, they're, they're oriented towards the very long term. Uh, I haven't looked at it super carefully, but it sounds like what you're saying is people that have a value tendency, they might not want to get drawn in by dividend yield because in the current environment, that might lead one to falling knife situations. Yeah, and like I feel like yeah, that's that's exactly right. I also think like if you were going to put money in oil and gas, you might be better off like putting a smaller amount in one of these moonshot ones and then plopping it into Exxon or whatever. Because like um, let's just from an EV perspective, um, it's not necessarily clear that those big play, those big popular plays that that when you lift up the hood, they don't actually look that good. If you get one of these little guys right that hangs on and survives the cycle you know, yeah, 20 X easy. And uh, related to our conversation, because, because the decline has been so severe and, and these smaller players are, are levered to the oil price, people should not think about these plays as normal investments. They should think about them as, as a stock that behaves like an option on oil prices. And it's yeah, yeah, very much volatile. so. You have to look at this as like a, like I'm, you're likely going to lose, but you know, it, they're good. They're, they're very likely to be survivors out there. Um, also on the, the banking sector, you mentioned the surprise that, that the banking sector is down so severely. The way that I personally think about that is uh, people talk a lot about how the banking sector has been much healthier through this cycle. There's much less risk taking. The balance sheets are much healthier. Um, they just talk about good behavior for the banking sector because we always fight the last war. The last war originated with bad lending. We've, we've controlled that process. Um, so that was sort of the narrative going in, right? Yep. And people have kept that narrative in their mind. And so they're surprised by the steep declines in the banking sector. What they don't realize is that banking is banking. You've got fractional reserves. You've got, uh, you've got the same deposit base or the same equity being lent out multiples of times. No banking institution can withstand loan losses. And we've never had an environment where you've had no loan losses on the horizon. And then all of a sudden, loan impairment pops up from nowhere. Banks can't withstand people not paying them back. They can't take discounts on the loans that are out because if, if they loan out a dollar and all of a sudden that only looks like it's worth 90 cents, in terms of their equity, it's far worse than it appears because they're levered institutions. So I think that 
the reaction has been correct for banks. Um, I think that actually it's, it's not their fault, but they're going to suffer because they're going to have losses on things like consumer credit cards and consumer car loans and, and that type of thing, which are relatively small percentages of their balance sheet. But they're also going to have losses that they couldn't anticipate on things like New York real estate, Miami real estate, <clears throat> LA real estate, San Francisco real estate. No bank could possibly have anticipated what happened. There was no time to prepare. Um, and the way these private markets operate is they, they actually sort of benefit from the fact that we're not seeing their price every day on a screen. It's like some venture capital firms and private equity firms in the last three weeks, some of their investments are marked down like 95% if they're realistic about things. But when they report their returns to investors, it'll be like, oh, we had a really terrible month. You know, we, were, we were down 6% this month. <laughs> And nice that's, that's just the way it is. And in, in banking, it's similar that they're, the prices that really hurt them are not flashing on the screen. So what has happened, for instance, in New York real estate? New York real estate has gone no bid for sure. I don't even have to know New York real estate to know that right now there are no bids coming in. And so that's a problem for banks. We don't know what the prices are for an office building, for, for a condo, and they've lent on all of this stuff, right? Um, so the way that we're gonna muddle through this situation in the banking sector is we can't like mark all the equities to what the prices would be if you had to transact this week, because if you had to sell a condo this week, yeah, it's not gonna be very good. Um, so what's going to happen is, as always, these prices are, are sticky and the lack of demand will just show up in no transactions. So like this week, the true price of New York real estate has fallen a lot, but no one will have to market on their books because people will keep the ask price about the same and just no one's going to take it. No one's going to bid. You'll have zero transactions. And what we might hope would happen is that it just stays in that situation for a while. And then six, seven months later, you start having a few transactions at the old ask price of a couple months ago, and everyone can keep their books the way they were, and it's all fine. But people are correctly seeing the danger that, oh, things changed overnight, and these banks might have loan impairment, and that's a problem. Yeah, um, no. I guess I should have been more clear when this coronavirus started, you know, myself and other people were thinking about, okay, like, where is the pain? And, you know, all the obvious stuff was pretty obvious, right? Retail, cruise airlines, blah, 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 obvious. But I, looking back at, at like myself, you know, six weeks ago or eight weeks ago, I didn't do, I didn't, I didn't think about this the way I should have. And um, the, the move, if you think about the move relative to the implied vol in the options market, the, the sort of what the forward expectations for volatility in the options market were, I would wager to say like outside of, depends how early you're looking, but if you look, looked in late February, like where was the best value in the options market, it was financials. 
I think. And I, I didn't, I didn't see that in the, in the moment. And I think that that's something that was a learning experience for me. And, um, you know, my, my thinking was, okay, fine. Rates will be zero forever. We, that's not a huge change from where we were anyway. The trajectory, you know, it does make a difference, but not, not a massive change. But like you said, I think the credit side of it, I didn't really think through as well. You know, I thought, okay, maybe they have some exposure to oil, maybe some exposure to retail. Um, most of the banks that we're dealing with, even in, in Oklahoma, aren't even, like, in Oklahoma, they're way higher than oil than other, or other parts of the country for the most part. But I didn't, I didn't see this one right. And that was where the real value was. Well, the, the, the banking sector is, it's always central to problems because you have, you have this phenomena that they can't withstand much loan impairment. Um, but it sort of speaks to the fragility of, of the overall situation in that um, no economy can withstand everyone rushing to cash at once. Modern economies are just not built that way. And the US, because we're especially leveraged and we had especially rich asset prices across the board, we are quite fragile. Um, and a rush to cash is a disaster. Yeah. Can't withstand it, cannot. No company, no individual, no <clears throat> institution. It, it, it's, it's, uh, it's really dangerous. And I think that's, that's where the, uh, the possibilities of a, of a quick collapse come from. And we, we had that feeling in markets on a, a few different days in the last couple of weeks of an absolute rush to cash, I don't care. Yep. With that, a lot of those days, there were forced liquidations. Like they were just margin calls where people were just like out of everything. And I haven't, I haven't seen that kind of stuff since 2008. I'm like, just, just like entire funds just being like, okay, it's a zero. And then the bank's taking the portfolio over and just getting out. And that's what was happening last week. And it's still happening. Uh, yeah. Still being. Now that, now you mentioned the healthcare sector, um, the healthcare sector, it's one of those sectors where valuations are always a little bit rich or at any rate, you're valuing cash flows that are far into the future. So they, they always seem rich. Um, and so it's, it's always vulnerable in a significant downdraft. Uh, it has been a little bit stunning the decline in prices, especially for mid cap, small cap bio. Uh, I think another problem is that they uh, need some level of liquidity in markets and the dry up in liquidity has been so severe that it's, it's led to very low liquidity in these names and some people needing to get out and it just, it has a very, very strong reaction in price and the, and the prices are not, not yet compelling enough that, that you have people digging for value. So uh, I, I wonder if, if we'll get more declines there and then all. Well, well, just think about active management. Um, think about the types of funds that have done well the past 10 years. It's the, within the long short community, it's almost exclusively long short tech focused funds and long short healthcare focused funds. So whenever there's deleveraging and pain, 
you know, those are, those are where a lot of the active management is. That's where a lot of the leverage is within hedge funds. And so I think that had a contributing factor as well. Um, yeah, like you said before, when these smaller biotech companies are accessing public markets every two years religiously, and this happens, people know that it's a little bit dicier than normal to access public markets now. And so they get discounted, definitely. Um, but, you know, like we also went from like, the most incredible euphoria in biotech at the end of last year, you know, the last six months of 2019 were insane for biotech. You know, you had crazy, crazy, crazy euphoric moves up. So I think part of what happened now is also a correction there. Yeah. My personal belief is if we, if we do get a, a significant up move, which might be far in the future, it seems reasonably likely that healthcare will also lead, lead the way out. Well, yeah, and, and, and the broad, the bigger healthcare companies have, have been much better than a lot of stocks you could find. Like, not talking the smaller ones, but think about the larger healthcare companies. You know, those are those are the outperformers in the market today, um, in the last few weeks. And and the bull case for the healthcare sector is that Bernie Sanders is not going to win. That's the bull case. I mean, that's, re- that's realistically, an- yeah, realistically, if you went back three weeks ago, like there was this elephant in the room, <laughs> and now the elephants almost exited the room. And I think, I think the bull case, yeah, is forget the coronavirus. Like in the last three weeks, there's been a massive positive for healthcare sector. And that's Bernie Sanders being like a huge, huge dog to be in the white house now. Yeah. And a lot of, a lot of the uh, smaller biotech companies are doing very sophisticated gene therapy treatments and things like this. And, and, and what will tend to, revalue the sector is when uh, big pharma stabilizes and has some visibility into the future, they'll, they'll buy some of the smaller companies and that sort of. Oh yeah. Well, Gilead, Gilead made a purchase the other, you know, a few weeks ago. Um, I think one thing I'd like to point out about healthcare is that uh, we call them the bucket of Corona's, but there's a bucket of healthcare stocks that are, typically trade up when, when virus news is bad and, and down when virus news is good. Um, there are companies that have come out and publicly said that they're working on a vaccine or working on some sort of um, thing to help with coronavirus. If you look back over the history of vaccines, it's usually not a good business. These companies are either doing it because they feel like they have, they owe something to society, which is great. There are a bunch of big companies that are doing things that I'm sure they think are negative dollar EV, but good for the world. And, and that's awesome that they're doing that. There are also some companies that are really smaller companies that are pumping their stock by putting out press releases saying we're working on a Corona vaccine. And a lot of people just buy them on, the, on that headline, kind of like when the pot stocks were hot and you had all these like, you know, the iced tea company deciding, no, 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 we're going to sell pot drinks now. And, you know, the stock's going crazy. So there's some element of that. If you look back over the, the sort of financial success of a vaccine, let's say we came up with the vaccine tomorrow. First of all, we'd probably just give it away. Like it, it wouldn't sell for a lot of money. And yeah, it's, it's not like, if you look at you know, gene therapy, for example, those, those treatments can cost $2 million a patient, right? Those are huge. You get paid out huge if you come up with a good gene therapy. Vaccines, a hundred bucks max. You know, you're gonna basically give it away to make the world a better place. So anyone that's not experienced with healthcare, I always say like, when you get these kind of thing, just be very careful of those stocks that are, that are actually a lot of them have gone up in value quite a bit based off of their potential to help with coronavirus, but you have to be very careful with that. 
So, so now um, that that I've I've come through your 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 brilliant overview, we can start okay getting to getting to a few of the of the questions that we had, and I'll Perfect. I'll introduce the the questions that we had because I've started to pay attention to uh, sort of poker DFS Twitter and and the thinking there, and there are some themes that come to mind. Okay, the themes that I want to mention really quickly are, uh, first of all, in markets, you want to be tremendously VIG sensitive, where you're not doing strategies that require a lot of turnover or strategies that have uh, large commissions or bid-ask spreads. So I, you'll elaborate on this point, but the option market for the most part is, is not a place for the individual investor because the transaction costs are, are going to be too high. Um, so that's point one. Point two is there's, there's a tendency for some reason I've noticed over, over, over time um, in the poker world, poker players are very independent of thought and very analytical. But for some reason, when it comes to stocks, they really like group buy-in. They like to do stuff that other people are in. Very important in stocks. I would argue that for most people, even if your process is not great, what you come upon independently is probably better than something you hear about. You should in general not be investing in ideas that you hear about. People don't always have your best interest at heart. Uh, entering into a crowded trade is never good. You never know if you're second in line or, or 300th in line. Like either have one trusted friend you know is giving you good reasoned advice and take small bets with that, with that advice uh, or do your own independent thought, but don't, um, don't, take word, don't take word of mouth. And the other thing that's more of a theoretical thing is um, the, the poker player is seated at a poker table and they're hopefully sitting down at the table and playing in a small enough game where they're risk neutral about the money involved. If you ever play poker and you're not risk neutral about the money that's in front of you, you're playing terrible poker. Um, investing is different. You're not supposed to be risk neutral over the <clears throat> over what you're wagering. You're supposed to have an investment portfolio that, that's that is your entire wealth or close or close to it. And and um, and so EV thinking, expected value thinking, is not the right way to go. You need to think about maximizing your geometric return over time. And when you're thinking about geometric return, uh, unlike poker decisions, variance is something to be avoided. Variance can be very bad for you. Um, so for instance, at a time like this, when we're near a market bottom and we don't when i say we're near a bottom we don't know whether the bottom is 1750 or 2000 or 2400 but if you're looking at a very long horizon these are nominal prices we live in an inflationary world markets are going to be up 15 years from now if the world doesn't fall apart so let's say you come up with a great short idea 
and you get really aggressive on the short, you might have done all your work and that could be a very good expected value play. But if you're wrong, it's a geometric disaster because you've decimated your capital base at a, at a time when you could be investing over a long horizon with the full capital base. So you want to think in terms of long-term geometric returns, not short-term EV. And you want to, especially when you get near bottoms, be, be careful about trades where your EV is coming from, from possibly losing a lot of the capital base. Um, so yeah, that's basically my, that, that's my summary. Maybe you could start off talking about VIG and, and why option markets can be tough. Yeah. I think if you think about people that make money in options consistently, um, they fall into a few buckets. The biggest bucket and by far the best bucket to be in is someone that's collecting the VIG, right? So if you think about the largest funds out there or prop groups out there that have been in options and successful in options, almost all of them are centered around the idea of capturing that VIG. And what they are basically saying, and their numbers prove it, is that if you just take the other side of all these option trades that people are doing out there on their interactive brokers accounts or whatever, E-Trade accounts, it's a wildly profitable opportunity. So I think just backing up a step, you know, the one of the best investment strategies or trading strategies that's out there is liquidity provided. It doesn't, it, it, lo it can look different in different ways. You know, you can be, you know, on the phone with someone trying to buy something and giving them a price. You can be electronically streaming things out there, trying to take the other side of someone else's trade. I think most professionals out there, especially in options, a lot of them are not doing anything more special than just trying to collect that big. And so, yeah, so backing up options, right? So if you are pricing an option and, and Brandon is a, is a you know, much smarter academic than I am, but um, if you're pricing options, you know, the one big var unknown variable in the Black-Scholes model is future volatility, right? What, how volatile will something be in the future? And I think that all the best option trades that don't involve just collecting VIG, which is by far the easiest way to make money in options, all the good trades that involve crossing the spread involve an informed view on future volatility. And so often I see people that use options because they think the stock's going to go up or they think the stock's going to go down. And it's not really a very well thought out view on future volatility. The best option trades that you can do when you're crossing the spread is when you have a view on that. It's not just something that's there. It's actually something that you've studied and you have a view on it. So an example of that would be there's a, an event coming up and you think that event's very important and the market thinks the event's less important. Then we start, now we're talking about something where maybe you could cross the spread and maybe you could have edge and, and be a winner doing that. I just think that a lot of people trade options very, very lazily. Um, they're very fun. You, you, you can spend like X dollars and know your downside. Um, for all those reasons though, I think it takes quite a bit to be good at options and you have to really understand how options are priced and you have to have a very informed view on volatility. That's, that's the key. And um, yeah, like you said, all the data shows in aggregate, 
the people that are just punting options on their on their interactive brokerage accounts are massive, massive losers. They're massive, 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 massive losers. And if you want to not be one of those people, you need to figure out, A, how do I collect the VIG instead of pay the VIG? Or B, how do I have a very informed opinion about this option that's differentiated from the crowd? Um, I'm not saying that necessarily option market's always correct. You know, there's, there's for sure times there are inefficiencies in the options market. Um, the other way that, you know, a lot of people approach trading options looking for value is that they look at relative option prices. So they say, okay, you know, tech company A versus tech company B, you know, I think that the implied volatility should be, you know, this far apart. And sometimes there's dislocations there and you can find, and you can find levels, but those are the kinds of things that people that are good at options are doing. And it does not lend itself very well to a short-term hobby. You know, I think we got some questions about it, like, oh man, I, I got 15 hours a week. You know, if you have 15 hours a week and, and you're just doing it casually, my view is always, you can be, it's easier to be a casual investor than a casual trader. Like there are a lot of things you can do to be, I know a lot of people that don't spend much time investing, but I, I actually think that they're reasonable investors. Like they do a good job with their portfolio allocation. Maybe they play poker all the time, but they, they do smart things and they're not studying markets all day. They're not staring at a screen all day like I am. I think people should try to be casual investors because there are cool things you can do. You can do research on stocks. You can dig into really small companies that are overlooked. You can look in geographies people aren't looking in. There's a lot of cool things you can do. Casually punting options, you're almost always a loser unless there's some, some real thought put in and, and you've done your homework. And... Um, you know, the last thing about options is there's also another use for options, which is just hedging. You know, option is derivative. The point of the reason we have options is so people can move risk around, right? If one person wants risk and someone else doesn't have, it's a very good tool for transferring risk. So there's not also nothing wrong with using options to hedge. You know, if you, if you, if you want to hedge or even some sort of light speculation, like I'm okay with sort of using them to risk manage your portfolio the way you like it. Even if you're not an options expert, I think that's an, a, a very reasonable thing. Approach it like you're going to be a small loser. There's a small amount of big you're going to pay, small amount of EV loss. But if you traffic in liquid stuff and you're just using options to sort of have your risk where you want so you can make good decisions, like, like what you pointed out, like half of the battle investing is when times like this are happening, whether we're at the bottom now or later or whatever, is having the right portfolio set up. So for the next 15 years, you're doing well. And when you shoot yourself in the foot by not being able to be aggressive in times like this, it's really, 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 it's a geometrically expensive mistake, as you pointed out. And so, yeah, I always tell people, if you part-time hobby, become an investor. Find some cool things you're interested in, do some research. You don't have to be like a, a guy that can understand all the financial statements deeply. You can do some just very anecdotal research, just on things that are interesting to you. And I think that there's value there and it's fun. If you want to be a trader and you want to actually take yourself seriously and make money, there's a lot that has to happen. You need to figure out a way to be able to collect the big instead of paying it, which is not easy. Um, and usually involves going to work with someone else that knows how to do that or knows how to get involved in doing that. Or do a lot of research into implied vol on options and have informed views on why either relative to each other or why certain vols are, are mispriced. So I have a random question for you in terms of, um, collecting the VIG. I personally don't traffic in options too much, but I was, I was curious about one random thing. Um, let's say you do want to get involved in the options of an individual security that, that you know well. One of the disadvantages that the individual has 
relative to say your firm is that maybe you put out a bid and an offer that's well-placed, but then when you put out the bid or the offer, it just stays there. Yeah. And you can't possibly move it around fast enough relative to market conditions. Um, do you know of any great software that maybe interacts with the, with the best known brokerage firms that you could, you could set it to move. Like you say, these are my parameters and, and I want this to move around or that just doesn't exist for the individual. No, no, no. There are plenty of things off the shelf that are decent. So where you say, Hey, I want to bid 40 vol for this option and I want you to move it when the stock moves. There are plenty of things out there like that off the shelf. Um, like if, if you were a, a fund for, you set up a fund and you were prime, you you are a prime brokerage client of any respectable firm, they would offer you an off the shelf product that could do something like that. Um, and, and those tools are getting better and better and better and better. So there are things off the shelf. I'm not sure, maybe even interactive broker has a tool like that. I, th I, think, I think someone told me they have, I have no, I can't comment on like the credibility of it. I don't, I'm not that familiar with the retail products out there, but not very far out of reach. There are plenty of third parties that will give you software like that. Now, will it be quicker than the big boys? No. Will you have the market data co-located server getting stuff instantly and adjusting? No. Will there be times where the stock moves very quickly and you get uh, the wrong side of it? Yes. So um, I would say like, don't kid yourself. You're not going to find something off the shelf. That's as good as the real, real pros out there. But if you were um, looking for something to sort of uh, put on a position or take off position in, in probably a better way than just crossing the bid offer spread, those things do exist out there. Um, the other random question I had for you, uh, there was a remarkable move in, in Tesla, as you know, in, in January into February. And there was an interesting podcast on Bloomberg recently where they, they talked with the founder of the Wall Street Bets forum. And it was known at the time and noted at the time that Tesla was, was being talked about every day in this Wall Street Bets forum. But when you read their posts, one of their ideas is, well, it seems like every time we all go crazy together and buy a lot of options in Tesla, the, the hedging that the market makers do is, is driving it up and benefiting. And then we can just buy more the next day. And obviously it did sort of work. And now we're seeing to some extent, the other side of the, the Delta hedging, but, but um, what were you thinking as you observed these moves? Were you involved in any way? And were you like actively reading these forums and thinking about what was going on? What's your story of the-, the Yeah, so the I, I can't group? get too deep into the individual stocks, but okay. you know, I was, as an observer of that, um, it's not the first time this, you know, we, I think we talked about a, a, a pot stock the other, the other time I was on your podcast that was, that went crazy and where the bar went nuts and a much different situation. I think for sure that's happening. Like there, there is definitely when, when all those people on those forums get out there and buy call options, it, it's, it's absolutely a factor in what happened in Tesla. I mean, I don't know what the, what the, what the debate is like for sure. The reason Tesla went up is because all these crazy people were plowing into the stock and options. There wasn't really much fundamental stuff going on at the time. Right. So like to justify that kind of move. So yeah, I mean, I, th there can be very, very 
uh, crazy feedback loops with options. And it's not just Tesla. I mean, there are, there are like zillions of situations like that that happen all the time. Well, SIG did show up as a 7% owner in their filings, which yes. was one random snapshot in time. You, you might assume that they owned even more at, at peak Tesla craziness. And that's the total float, which is a large percentage of the effective float because like right. Elon doesn't trade his shares and there are some individuals like Ron Barron that, that just keep the shares locked up. And there's a, <clears throat> it's possible that the option market makers at one point did have a, a, a large percentage. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's a great indication. Like you obviously can't see six short book in their filings, just their long stock. And whenever you see um, an option market maker filing and it's just long a lot of stock and nothing else really in there, like like the, the stock position wasn't really reflective of the option position that they reported in their filing, that means they're short a lot of options. So it's, yeah, like you said, it's a very good representation of the activity. But you did get an unwind. However, Tesla has uh, gone down from the peak about what you would expect if there was no level of craziness in there. It hasn't, it hasn't had a particularly savage drop given its characteristics. I mean, that, that makes sense to me because it's a popular short among hedge funds. So when you have hedge funds taking risk off, um, you, you know, there are other shorts out there too that have performed very well uh, for the, because of those dynamics. You know, when there's deleveraging in, and you know that there are funds that are just getting out, you will see the highly shorted, popular shorted stocks outperform. And I think part of what you're, that dynamic you're noticing in, in Tesla is probably playing out. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> So one other distressed situation, the, the oil and gas uh, blow up, there was clearly on Friday a lot of insanity going on in oil and gas. And uh, no, one, no one listening to this should ever be involved in any double levered or triple levered securities because they have high implicit VIG and you're taking bets that you don't know you're taking. And in general, they're just a terrible thing to trade in and and an especially terrible thing to hold for more than one day. Um, but one of these vehicles, JNUG, which is very popular, seemed to blow up completely and detach from the underlying. And um, at the same time, there were some oil and gas miners that had some crazy activity going on. And in option, in uh, ETFs that are more reasonable, that are not levered, they diverged very significantly from their net asset value. Um, so what was going on on Friday last week? Yeah. So what you pointed out was broad-based. So one way of seeing that is when you see an ETF trading, a, a very liquid ETF trading 4% from its NAV, I mean, that's insane because th that should be a pure ARB, right? That, that, that's literally for certain market participants, that's free money, right? You, you know exactly where the basket of the, of the stocks are trading. You trade that, you trade the ETF, free money, free ARB. It's just a testament to unwind. And when stress flows through the system, you see unwinds. You know, the other place you saw that was merger ARB space. So starting last week, you look at company A buying company B, even in spots where you know, financing is not an issue um, where the buyer is very unlikely to try to get out of the deal for whatever reason. 
those spreads blew up last week in tandem with these ETF spreads widening out. And then also other stuff, you know, commercial paper, blah, blah, blah. Like a lot of stuff that is just stuff you saw in 2008 happen when, when they were stressed to the system, you saw it again. Like, I just think it's a function of liquidity and stress and people saying, I need cash. And that's when you see these kind of things happen. I think they're all connected. And I don't think there's a rhyme or reason by the ETFs. I just think the normal people that step in to provide liquidity were feeling pain and pulling back. Yeah. Um, and it's possible, we don't know, that we'll find out about some large systematic liquidity provider having been hurt during that time. I've heard only rumors, but I've heard rumors of liquidity providers. I've heard rumors of large funds, well-known funds. I've heard rumors of small funds. I've seen trades in the market, which look very much like liquidations of small to medium-sized funds. Um, there was some, on Zero Hedge, there was, a, there was a story written about a VIX trade that looked like very much like a liquidation. Um, and that was a very large VIX trade. That was, I think it was two weeks ago. Um, that was likely not, that was likely a professional investor that, that was liquidating. So yeah, I'm, I'm very curious to see in the next couple of weeks, we're gonna, there'll be some stories out. So I want to hit one more, uh, one more thing that I think maybe the poker world misses when the, when I see tweets about market, and then and then we'll go into some specific questions. We've hit on a okay. lot of specific questions already. Um, one big thing I see missed because I think a lot of poker players are relatively new to looking at markets drawn in by the volatility. I I see a tendency to miss the enormity of the policy response that's likely coming and the enormity of the policy response that's that has already happened um and in my opinion my personal opinion the policy response is not right it sh there are parts of it that are going to be wrong um especially the idea of bailing out the equity of companies that borrowed a lot to buy back stock to to pay executives huge amounts of money that is uh that is something that i find hard to tolerate and we should definitely in terms of stimulus packages be getting money to to people and not equity holders like that just seems obvious to me and important um but there, the talk today, it seemed to involve possibly a lot of money to, that will benefit equity holders. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on the moral hazard. Like, I think these companies, yeah, it's, it's insane. It's insane to pay yourself all this money in compensation, pay your shareholders these big dividends, buy back all the stock and then ask for a bailout. It's especially if it's not a company that's like a, you know, systemically important company, like a cruise line, for example, you know, I don't get the rationale of the, 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 our government saying we need to bail out cruise lines. That just, I get airlines. I don't get cruise lines. You know, there are things like airlines, banks. Okay. Like we as a world would like them to function, now, whether the equity has to have any value is a different question. I think the thing about the market right now is it's clear our president 
the next two or three weeks is, is his reelection campaign, right? And his favorite barometer is the stock market. So I promise anything he can do to make the stock market go up, he's going to try to do it. And it's without regard for moral hazard or regard for what's, what's fair for executives or shareholders. And this, is the, this is his re-election campaign. You can see the betting markets for the election have moved drastically since coronavirus. And it, this is the election right here. So, yeah, I, I agree with you when I talk to poker players. They completely miss the ball on what is possible in terms of the government backstopping either individuals and or the markets. And, uh, yeah. And they also, they also miss the idea that like 2,500 on the S&P today is not equivalent to 2,500 on the S&P even a year ago because with interest rates at zero, we're discounting cash flows into the forever future. And all of these policy responses are probably long-term inflationary. And so you've got more more money sloshing around you're discounting it to the forever future the companies that survive they they might have a lot of value in in four or five years so um i i think people miss the inflationary impulse and the and the extent of the policy response i think the obviously this is really obvious but like you know when the coronavirus first happened there was a lot of edge to be made in markets if you could kind of see this playing out and you know there was an article about um Boaz Weinstein, who runs Saba Capital, he dabbles in poker. So maybe some people have some familiarity with him. I, I saw his 13F is like, it's, it's actually like a dream. It's, it's, he right. And they had an article, I think they published an article last week on his performance. And that's an example of a fund manager who saw what was happening and was like, I'm going to put in the right stuff for this because this is going to be a problem. And he made a killing. And but do, you, do you think that's actually the story? I mean, I, first of all, I think that his, I think that his portfolio was a dream. I've actually never seen a 13F that's so perfect. Um, 13F is the, is the filings of the positions that, that a hedge fund will have. Never seen one so perfect. But if you look at the, uh, the value of holdings, it's suggestive of the idea that he's had these positions on for quite a while, had a terrible Q4, and then- You should read the article. I mean, he basically, he basically looked for pain points. And I, I don't think this was necessarily being a 13F yet because the Q1 13Fs are not out yet. So I think if you read the article, you'll, he references a lot of trades that are made in Q1 and that have to do with- Where was it? Because I did see an article, but it didn't go into any detail. Um, I saw it on Bloomberg. They like, they like writing about him on Bloomberg. I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you after this. Um, and um, I thought that in general, yeah. So what my, my point was, there was a ton of edge in markets back then. And it I'm, I'm guessing there were definitely poker players back then that were like, wow, like this could be a big deal. The market hasn't really moved. Like there's, but like looking at it today, you're right. It's given where the price of options are, given how much the market's moved down, people need to be very, very, very careful. Yeah. And I agree. Like, I, I think poker players also don't understand like what's being priced in the markets. You know, it's not always, it's not clear to me. It's not clear to anyone exactly what's priced in the markets right now, but obviously the market at this point understands that it's going to get a lot worse. And, and it, you have to sort of weigh the dynamics of what's actually being priced in now. Um, you know, it's hard to exactly quantify what is being priced in today, but there's a lot less Corona edge to be had today than there was back in January, February when 
you can read about Boaz, what he was doing. Like that was real edge right there. Yeah. And what's priced in to your point, we don't know what it is, but it's a lot. It's a lot. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it's like, it's like if I, I'm just making up a number here, but if we went on sort of a, you know, somewhere between uh, South Korea and Italy trajectory in the U S like, I think the market's somewhere in there. That's my guess. But I mean, who knows? Yeah. Um, some of our questions, because they came yesterday and yesterday was especially severe, they involved uh, short selling bans and yeah. closures. So the we short selling that. ban is much, much easier to talk about. Why don't, why don't you discuss what, what you think the probability of a short selling ban is, say, in the next three weeks and uh, perhaps what the history was in 2008 and and also perhaps how investors might play defense against a possible ban? Yeah, I think there's two things here, right? Um, there are two things that are lumped in here, two tools that they can use, right? The first is what's called the uptick rule. So um, there is a rule right now the way the rule works is if a stock goes down 10% or more in a given day, it becomes short sale restricted. And that doesn't mean you can't short sell at all. It just means you can only short sell on an uptick. What an uptick means is a price greater than the last price that it traded at. And so you can only short on an uptick for short sale restricted stocks, which are stocks that if the stock goes down 10%, it's short restricted the rest of that day and the next trading day. If anyone's ever traded or tried to short a stock that's short sale restricted, they'll notice, you know, it's a little bit harder to, to execute. It takes more time. It's more annoying. Um, that is one thing they could do. They could, they, could, they could broadly say every stock is short sale restricted. And there's a lot, obviously we have a lot of data on what that does for stocks. Um, that would very unlikely lead to a huge spike in stock prices, but it is a tool they have available for themselves. And it does make it harder to short things. Um, obviously, I think we're on the same page here. I, I believe shorting 99 plus percent of the time is not done in some malicious way to like push down the price of an asset. I think shorting, generally speaking, uh, enhances price discovery and allows people that aren't as sophisticated to get more efficient pricing with markets. It's very, very important part of markets, in my opinion. So before we dive in, if anyone's listening, who's in politics, it's a horrible idea to do this. But 2008, they, they, were, they took a bunch of lists of stocks and financials and other stocks that were affected. And they said, you can't short sell these at all. And you know, we were talking about this yesterday, but it led to an incredible pop in the near term. Part of it, as you pointed out, was a confusion. Um, do I have to cover my existing shorts? If you look at what happened in Korea right now, they didn't say you have to cover your existing shorts. They just said you can't do new shorts. But it led to an incredible pop. But if you went back to 2008, um, that pop faded. And you know, the market low was March of 2009. I think the short sale ban was around September of 2008. So, it was a temporary but in waves. It was, they had the ban on naked short selling July 16th. And then they had a, a ban on financial firms. And then, and then they had a, and then they had a ban that was much, much wider. So uh, yeah, naked short selling is not allowed now. Naked short selling implies short selling. So market makers used to have an exemption. So the exemption was, so normally when you short a stock, let's say I'm shorting and Brandon's an asset manager. I have to go to Brandon and say, Brandon, Hey, I need to borrow that stock. And then I'm going to sell the market. That's what shorting is. And then later on, I have to give Brandon his stock back. Naked short selling is when you just short sell and you don't actually secure a locate. The locate is what's, what is, what's meant by 
when Brandon lets me buy the stock, that means I've located it. So in, in industry terms, in order to short, you need to locate. Naked short selling is when you short without a locate. Back in the day, certain people were allowed to do that. Certain market makers were allowed to do that. You can't do that anymore. You have, you have to have a locate when you short. So this naked stuff, it's kind of off the table now because in, in, if you naked short sell, immediately you have a regulator being like, what happened here? Um, so I think what we're discussing here is like a, just a ban on short selling, which is like, if you read about what's happening in Korea, they're doing that. And again, I think you will see a pop in prices if that happens. I think the jury is very much out whether that has any sort of effect on the future price of an asset, like beyond a very short term time horizon, because a lot of times what happens is people that are long the stock use that as a, that pop to sell. And um, yeah, I, I think you would see very, very severe moves potentially based off of that kind of an announcement, but I don't think that they're long lasting and um, I don't think they're effective things to do for policy reasons. Like I don't, but you can't rule it out because our president is looking for things like this to make the market go higher. And in terms of straightforward advice that stems from our discussion, you should be a little bit less aggressive in your shorts because there is this possibility out there that they have a ban and you might get a vicious move upward in the, in the prices. It's yes, a hundred percent true. You have to, you have to be, it has to be on your radar of things that can happen right now. If you're in markets and you're trading, this is one of these things that if this announcement comes out and shocks you, you've, you've done something wrong. And we agree that it's like 30 to 40% in the next three weeks. I would have said that yesterday. It's maybe. very path dependent, you know, yeah. it's very path dependent, but you're right. Uh, yeah. I think, I think, I think that's what I said yesterday. Yeah. Um, so you have to be careful for that reason. We also had the question of, um, I think, uh, Sias asked about, uh, what would happen to put options and put options volume if, if you uh, had a ban on short selling. I think one straightforward result is you'd have less puts written at, at wider spreads because they, the market makers couldn't hedge themselves. Uh, what else do you think about in terms of how you, you have to prepare your business for a ban on short selling? It There's some fine print that matters here. Um, I think in general, you have to expect forward price of assets to go down. So like the same effect that happens when you have a hard to borrow stock, you know, basically a, the, 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 the option market will reflect that cost to short and that cost to short will go up if they have a short sale ban. So I, I don't know, maybe they could even be draconian and say, you're not allowed to buy puts. That's never happened, but maybe, the, I mean, that's probably very unlikely, but yeah, if it's very, very, very tricky because then what happens is the people that are long stock are able to maybe potentially sell puts because uh, they can always sell their own stock to hedge. And there's a lot of, there's going to be a lot of stuff. There's a big part of the option market right now that people aren't aware is, is financing, you know, because Brandon might be a big bank who has a very low cost of capital. I might be a hedge fund that has like a higher cost of capital and the option market you can re recreate uh, basically, you know, long and short stock positions through options. And, you know, obviously long and short positions through options have, if you have, if you own a stock, or you own a call and sell a put of the same strike, you're going to have similar exposure to the stock going up or down. But one of them you have to fund yourself because you have to buy the stock. And one of them is asset light. So 
the option market, a huge part of the option market that retail investors aren't aware of is a funding, is a funding trade because Brandon has a different cost of capital than I do. So there could be a lot of reasons why I shouldn't be long a stock because my balance sheet is more expensive than Brandon. So I should let him have it and we'll do an options trade to, to transfer the risk over. And this market um, represents a very large part of option volume. And this market would be thrown into chaos with this because you would now look at the cost of owning the, the, the benefit of owning stocks would go up in funding and being short would be much more expensive in, in, in that world where a short sale ban happens. So I don't have a great answer. I think generally speaking, the way I look at a short sale ban, there'll be a pop. If, if history is a guide, it will be temporary and the option market puts will get more expensive calls will get cheaper. That's what's going to happen. Now, the other questions we had, and, and this again reflects the fact that the market movements were so severe yesterday. Um, and they were severe pretty much from the get go. I mean, we were limit, limit down on Sunday night and futures and it was just a bloodbath all day with, with few reprieves. Um, so among the rumors circulating on Sunday night and Monday morning were the idea that, that Trump, who appoints the head of the SEC, and the SEC has decision on closing the market, should that occur, a very, very drastic action. But uh, among the rumors circulating were the idea that the market might close for a period of time, which is basically your hell. But <laughs> explain to me, first of all, I, I think there have been very credible rumors, more than credible rumors, that the, that the Option Clearing Corporation was discussing uh, what they would do in this case. So they were discussing the contingencies, documenting how they would handle the contingency. So they're basically prepared for the, the chaos that will ensue if, if the SEC does call for this. Um, this is another thing that we agree, pretty much everyone agrees is kind of a bad idea, but it might happen anyway. So how are you thinking about this market closure? So, Hurricane Sandy, was that 2013, I believe, 2012 or 13? Um, the market closed for a few days there. Um, and I saw firsthand sort of, yeah, so obviously that the market should have been closed there because downtown Manhattan was basically underwater. So it needed to close. Same, same thing for 9-11. Those are reasonable reasons to close the market, whereas just the market going down would be ridiculous. This would be absolutely absurd if this happened. But... Um, let's say it did happen. I think the thing that people need to understand about options is that you can exercise any option you own and you can not exercise any option you own. Just because the stock finishes at a certain price, you can still do whatever you want. So let's just hypothetically say a stock is $100 and you own a 105 strike call option and the stock closes Friday of expiration at 100 but then after hours, it's announced it's getting acquired for 130, right? You're allowed to call up your broker and say, I want to exercise that call option. I have till, I think it's, you know, 430 or 5 Eastern on Friday to exercise that option. You have that option. There are other times where like for risk reasons, a stock might be one or two cents in the money. Your option might be a, sorry, a penny or two in the money and you don't want to exercise that option. And it's not a very big EV either way, whether, whether you exercise or not. And for risk reasons, you don't want to do that. 
So there's a lot of reasons why professional option traders are exercising options that are out of the money or not exercising options that are in the money. Now, if we close the markets, this would be like a, a steroid version of that because what people would be doing is seeing where all their options were that they owned into expiry. And on that day, people would have to make a judgment about whether to exercise these options or not. You wouldn't know where the stocks are, like you wouldn't know, but that doesn't mean you can't exercise. So, you know, I think what people would be doing is maybe markets in Europe would be open or markets in Asia would be open. You would sort of try to back into what's going on there. What does that mean for prices in the US today? Should I exercise this put or not? Should I exercise this call or not? The bottom line is you don't want to get caught long a bunch of options in that environment, typically, because a lot of, if you just think about the volatility that, you know, in recent days, like these gigantic up moves, gigantic down moves, gigantic up moves, gigantic down moves. When you buy an option today, you're paying for that volatility every day. That's what you're paying for. And those day-to-day -day moves go away and you're just, and you just get like a, a one, two week move. It's very unlikely to be enough to compensate you unless there's a gigantic move over two weeks, especially given where options are priced today. So what I would say to people are, I think it's a very low likelihood outcome, but if it did happen, uh, you'd want the best position would be short options, in my opinion. Unless, of course, then Asia tails off 30% down, then maybe I'm not right. Maybe you just exercise all the puts that you own anyway and you do great. But I think in most scenarios where they close the market, um, you don't want to be long a bunch of options. Now, I believe we've hit most of the questions. I'm wondering if you can recall any questions. That... Uh, there was one like moral hazard thing that I thought was, I get this question a lot. Um, it was basically like, do you think all people in finance are just after money? And, you know, something about like, is that like a good way to spend your life or whatever? And I, I, get, I get that a lot. Um, I don't know. I'm sure you have a good answer for this uh, as a poker player and sports better. It's the same type of thing. You know, when you play poker, by the way, this person had a poker picture next to their name. So, you know, when you're playing poker, you're typically taking money from people that shouldn't be gambling, aren't very good. Uh, maybe you're degenerate gamblers, pe the kind of people that, you know, the reason why Dan Coleman gave his little speech, you know, like that whole idea, like, you know, it's, if you dig into the, you know, the poker, now I have no problem with playing poker recreate, you know, taking money from people that want to gamble. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but, there are some people that think, you know, there's a moral hazard to, to that. And I mean, for me, I think people should do what they're good at and what they like to do every day. And just because you make money in markets or lose money in markets, but net make money in markets, that doesn't mean you can't be a really productive member of society and help out and things like that. So I always get those questions. I don't really understand them completely. Um, I think it's my job no one's no one in markets is betting on coronavirus or hoping for coronavirus to be some awful thing, but it's your job if you're managing other people's money to prepare for all the scenarios and to try to do the right thing for your investors. That's your job. And so that's my job. It's whether I make money or lose money because of this awful thing that happened, doesn't take away that it's awful. doesn't take away that I'm just trying to do my job. And at the end of the day, you know, look at what Dan Smith is doing with his charitable drive. And there's a lot of philanthropy and good things happening in, in the finance world as well. You know, you can be as philanthropic as you, as you want or, or nice to people around you as you want, or you can be an asshole. And so, yeah, I don't know how you feel about that, Brandon, but I, I get that question quite a bit. Yeah. I, I, I feel the same way that it's one part of an overall picture and, and, um, there is some minimal societal function in keeping markets more efficient, but, but 
even if we say it has zero value, there are other aspects of life. You uh, take care of your kids, you support the community, you whatever, write, teach, what, what, what have you. Uh, and so it's part of an overall picture. Uh, I do have some sympathy for the idea that the way that our society has evolved is too much towards financialization and financialization that is that is harmful to the overall so uh one good thing that could come of this downdraft is that maybe some of the worst behaviors will be called out and and finance will be de-emphasized to some extent and uh we can hope that the policy response as we said is is more focused on getting money to people that need it and not towards bailouts. Uh, so that's, I think, going to be very important. And if that happens, then uh, maybe this turns out to be a blip and we've done some small part in decreasing the level of financialization in our society and also uh, inequality, right? At times, at times like this, if, if we downdraft by a half, like there's going to be a lot of, a lot of uh, flattening that, that takes place. Um, well, what, sorry, one other thing real quick. Um, I was asked like a good book or a good way to learn options. There, there's really no good online courses um, to learn this stuff. I, I'm open to being wrong if I haven't seen it, but the stuff that I've seen, I, I, it's, it's not good. The best way to learn is to work with someone. If you're really interested in trading your options, you know, get a job with someone that trades options. That's the best way to start. Getting those jobs can be really tricky. They're easiest out of undergrad typically, but they're done and they're done by networking. And there are a lot of former poker players that have gotten involved in trading the last two years. And if you guys DM me or whatever, I'm happy to sort of connect you with some of the people that have made that transition. Um, the other thing is the, the best options book is called Option Pricing and Volatility. It's by Sheldon Natenberg. Um, it's a book that has, in my opinion, a really good sort of fundamentals for options. It's a little bit less academic than Hull or other things people use, but I think it's a very, very good way to learn options, especially the first half of that book. So people are looking for sort of an intro to option theory. That's where you should start. All right. Well, this was great stuff. I took up oh, Brandon. Of your time. Then it's good just, talk with you, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. So um, I've noticed that during the, uh, during this downdraft, it works best if I just put out the raw footage immediately. Go for it. it. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. I did. Yeah, that's fine. So we're just going to put it out.